Well, good morning and welcome again. Those of you joining us online, wherever you may be at, I know many of you are traveling, some of you are unwell, uh, welcome also. Before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for the moment that is before us. Thank you for your precious word, for your truth. Help us this morning to be focused and not to be distracted by cares, anxieties, pleasures, and delights of this world. But may we hear your voice. May your spirit convict us. May your spirits illuminate for us the truth. May we hear what we need to hear. May we be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, corrected where we need to be corrected. And may we do so with uh, humble hearts. And Father, we ask that you'd be with those who are unable to be here, whether they are traveling. We ask that you bless them with safe travels, that you would be with those who are unwell, that you would heal them. And Father, as we go from here, that you would be with us and that we would glorify you in all that we do. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, may your word equip us, edify us, and sanctify us for that purpose. We ask this, Father, for your glory, by power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't you love it when the authors of Scripture are real clear, they're real specific, real explicit as to why they are writing what they are writing? Consider 1 John, 1 John 5.13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So at the end of his first epistle, he's telling us, this is why I'm writing you. This is the purpose of the letter, that you who believe, so not only does he tell us why he's writing, but he's also telling us to whom he's writing, to believers, that you may know that you have eternal life. John does this again also in his gospel. And again, he does it at the end of his gospel, near the end of his gospel, John 20, verses 30 and 31, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you remember in the Gospel of John, there are seven key signs that John writes about. And John here is saying, hey, look, there are many signs that Jesus did, but these seven, these seven that I have written about, I have written for a specific purpose, that you may know, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. In other words, John didn't write those miracles about those signs and wonders that Jesus did so that we can imitate them, but that we, would make, that we would know that he is the Christ. Well, now we come to that point in our journey in Hebrews, where the author tells us explicitly why he is writing this letter. Just in case, if there's any doubt up to this point to, in chapter 8, if there's any doubt or any confusion as to why he is writing, he explicitly states it for us in our passage. In doing so, he begins to transition uh, from the topic of the priesthood of Christ to the implications of that priesthood. He's been spending the last seven chapters talking about how the Son is greater than the angels, greater than man, how he's the best priest, his priesthood is a better priesthood, and then he's going to transition into the implications of that. That is, since that Jesus is this kind of a high priest that is superior to the Levitical priesthood, to the Aaronic priesthood, the things that come with it are better. Better covenants, a better ministry, better sacrifice, better blood, better promises, and so forth. All of which the author will expound more on as we progress through the final chapters of Hebrews. If you haven't already, I invite you to open up to our passage, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. 
Uh, we have Bibles underneath the chairs around you if you need it. The passage will be on the screen for you as well. We will read the passage in its entirety. Then we will identify the main point of the letter, which we find in verses 1 through 2. And then we will consider how this priest, Jesus, is different than the priesthood of the Levites and what that means for his ministry and for us. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So in verses 1 through 2, we're given the main point. We have this kind of a high priest. And he goes on to describe what kind of a high priest we have. He starts by saying, we, this kind of a high priest that we have is one who is seated. And that's significant. We must not just gloss over that. I think we Americans who sit a lot, we think, oh, he's seated. Like, not a big deal. But for a high priest to be seated, that means his work is finished. His atoning work is finished. If you recall the prologue in Hebrews 1 in verse 3, in the last part of verse 3, the author makes a connection of the priestly work being uh, connected to the atonement. He says, after making purification for sins, that's atonement for our sins, he, the son, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the kind of high priest that we have. That his main function, his, his, his main aim as a high priest to atone or to deal with the sins of God's people, it is finished. Thus he's able to sit down. See, the Levitical priests, when they went in the Holy of Holies, there is no chair there, there's no stool, there's no, because they can't sit down, because they are continually dealing with the sins of the people. But this kind of high priest, he sits down, because he's already dealt with the purification of our sins. And this high priest, where he is seated, it is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The author here is speaking to the idea, that the, the truth that Jesus, being a Melchizedek-type priest, he is a priest-king. And so as such, he has transcendent power. He has the authority. He has the power of Almighty God. Uh, think of Matthew 28, uh, 19, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So we have a high priest who has dealt with the, atone, the, the atonement, atonement, excuse me, atonement of our sins, who has the transcendent power of God, and he's a high priest that is in the holy places. He's in the true tent. That is, he's in the presence of God, and he's in the presence of God all the time, right? The high priest, Levitical priest, the Aaronic priest, could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, right? The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. He could only go there once a year, but this high priest that we have, he is there all the time. Thus, we can draw near to the throne of grace through him. He's in the true tent, the tent that God set up, not the tent that was pitched by man. 
we simply have to think of Moses pitching uh, the tent of meeting uh, in Nexus 33.7, where Moses writes, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The true tent in which Jesus is in, that's not the copy. That's not a, 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 a representation of the real thing. It is the real thing. It is the real deal. It is where God truly is. When tent pitched his tent of meeting and, and God presented himself to Moses in that tent, that was a special manifestation, a Shekinah type of glory that Moses was exposed to. But Jesus, the priest, where he's at, it's not a special manifestation. It is the pure glory of God. It is unadulterated. It is unfiltered. You can't get more pure than the glory that Jesus is currently in the presence of. He's in the fullness of God's glory. Unlike the, Levi Le the Levitical priest who on the Day of Atonement, they could go in, whatever glory they experienced, there was a special manifestation and nowhere near the glory that our priest Jesus is currently residing in. The author then, moving on from verse 2 to verse 3, then speaks to the priestly work of this high priest, Jesus Christ. High priests, as verse 3 points out, are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Right? This is the main function of the office. This is the main uh, purpose of a high priest, is to offer gifts and sacrifices. When the author started comparing the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedek priesthood, he reminds us of this in Hebrews 5.1, where he writes, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hence why the author here in Hebrews 8.3 writes, so it is necessary that he has something to offer as well. And we know what he has offered. We have talked about it. He has offered himself. Paul in Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But we need to remember that what Christ has offered is not only his blood for the atonement of sin, he has certainly offered that, right? And that's, that's the main thing, but he offers himself now, even now, as our intercessor. Not an offering to deal with our sins, because he's already made that offering, he's already made that sacrifice once for all, but as a priest king, he intercedes for us on our behalf to provide help for us in our time of need. Hence why we can draw near to the throne and we should remain near to the throne so that we may receive such help. And because of the priestly work of Christ and the location of it in verses 4 and 5, the ministry that Jesus has is a better ministry. For if Jesus was here on earth instead of heaven, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Right? If he was on earth, to be a priest on earth, you have to be a Levitical priest. And he's not a Levite, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. And he's part of a different, a better priesthood. And his priesthood has him seated at the right hand of God. He's in heaven right now. They, the Levitical priesthood, and all earthly ministries associated with it, they serve as a copy, as a shadow of the things above. Now, we need to understand that when the author here, which he's here, he's citing Exodus 25, 40, we need to understand that what was a shadow, what is a copy, doesn't mean that they're like counterfeit or that it's a forgery or that it is false or untrue. That, that's not what the author means here. When we look at Exodus 25:40, and God tells Moses, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. 
the copies, the shadows are meant to reflect the true thing, the, the better thing. They're not the thing itself, but they do resemble some truth. They do resemble some similarity to the real thing. And it's not that they are false. Rather, they are used for us here on earth to point us to what is heavenly, to what is true, to what is better. We can look at elsewhere in the New Testament for other examples of this. Paul speaks of things that aren't related to the Levitical priesthood, but he speaks of things that are reasonable for us to observe that are also shadows of things above, or more specifically, shadows of Christ. In Colossians 2, 16, 17, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So real things that we see on earth, but they point to better things, truer things. And the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, the tent, the, the temple, the, the, utens the utensils, um, and the Holy of Holies, and the inner courts, all those things were a copy, a shadow of the things above to where Christ currently is. And since Christ is where he is currently, a position that was made possible by his suffering, right? Remember Hebrews 2.10, the founder of our faith made perfect through suffering, that is by his death, followed by his exaltation by the Father as evidence in his resurrection and ascension. Since he is there and since he has been exalted by the Father, Jesus the Son has obtained a more excellent ministry. This is a point that Paul makes as well, except he uses different words in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, 11, but I think it will help us to understand more clearly what the author is speaking to. Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So think of this, ministry of death, right? That's Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant, that's the law. Think of carved in letters on stone, the, the tablets that Moses had at Mount Sinai, right? He broke the first pair. He had to go back up, get another copy. God gives him another copy, comes down with it. Think of the glory that accompanied all that, the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai, the fire, the thundering. But also think of the glory that shone on Moses' face. He came down. He had so much glory. His, his face shone with glory. The people were afraid of him, right? So he had to put a, a veil over, and this is what's Paul is talking about. They couldn't be gazed. The people couldn't be gazed at Moses' face. And so if what came then, the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory, then wouldn't the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So Paul goes on and says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, that's the ministry of Christ, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So in other words, ponder the glory that the Old Testament, the Old Law had, that the Old Covenant had, and think of all the glory that God brought with it. Well, what surpasses it, of course the glory has to exceed that, has to surpass that, and it does surpass that because it is the true thing, it is the better thing, it is the permanent thing. Thus, the ministry that comes with it is a better ministry. Also consider the prologue, Hebrews 1, verse 4. There the author talks about the Son, Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
There the author began his argument about how the Son is superior. Now, why would he mention the angels? Why would he say that Jesus has inherited a name that's more excellent than the angels? Well, the law was mediated by the angels. So if you need reminding on what passages speak about the law being mediated by angels, consider Hebrews 2.2, where the author says, since the message, that's the law, declared by angels, proved to be reliable. Or Paul, he speaks of it in Galatians 3.19. He says, and it, that's the law, was put in place through angels. And even Stephen, his final words, mention how the law was delivered by angels in Acts 7.53, where he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. So if the law, which the Levitical priesthood is tied to, right? If we recall, the author's already dealt with how when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. Because through what the law is mediated through, when you change the, the form of mediation, the law itself is changed. So when the priesthood was changed, the law was changed as well. And if the law came by angels mediated to the Levitical priest, if the son is greater than that, then what he brings is greater as well. The ministry of Jesus, of the high priest that we have, ultimately is more excellent, it is better, it is superior. And because of that, the covenant that he mediates is a better covenant, that the new covenant. We, we spoke briefly on the new covenant, covenant last week. Um, two weeks from now, when we continue in Hebrews, Matt Klein's going to be preaching next week, but when we continue in Hebrews, we will deal specifically with the new covenant. That's where the author goes next to is why the new covenant is better, why it is superior. And it's superior because it is effective. The old covenant was ineffective. The old covenant was outward change, but it could, it could not do the heart change. It could not give the new creation. It could not give eternal life. The new covenant is necessary for that. The new covenant makes eternal life possible. Because the new covenant, as the author states in verse 6, is founded on better promises. It is enacted or it is established on better promises. And that, that word, therefore, enacted or established, it's a, it's a legal term in the Greek. And so essentially the new covenant was legally established. It was legally enacted, legally obligated on better promises. And it is these promises in the new covenant, of which the new covenant is founded on, which lead to eternal life. And these promises, they lead to eternal life by us partaking of the divine nature. Consider 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Remember one of the promises of the new covenant is that all God's people would know him. Right? They will know me and they shall be my people. And in knowing him, we have all that we need for life and godliness. This is Peter's point here. His divine power is granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And so as such, this knowledge of him, knowledge of the holy, is what leads us to inherit the precious and great promises of God. Apart from knowledge of God, you can't inherit the promises. You can't partake of them. And when we know him and when we inherit the precious promises of God, that allows us to partake of the divine nature. And when Peter's talking about that, what he's essentially saying, or rather eloquently, is that we have fellowship with the Almighty. 
to partake of the divine nature is not that we ourselves become divine, like apart from God, as if we become demigods or, or partly divine. What it just means is that we have fellowship with God. This is 1 John. Like the whole point of us knowing that we have eternal life is knowing that we have fellowship with God. And so to have fellowship with God is to be in his presence, to know his holiness, to know glory, to know truth and righteousness in ways that right now we only know in parts, but one day we will know in full. So ponder this and know where you lie. If you don't desire to partake of the divine nature here and now, as much as you are able you will not want to partake of it when it is total and complete. If you don't want a taste of it now, you're not going to want the, the full dose, the full helping later. And if you don't desire it now, well, you won't get it later anyway because you don't want it. And since you don't want it, you don't really believe in Christ. You don't really follow him. See, if you don't desire to live holy lives of obedience now because that's how we partake, you're not going to want a holy life later. The one who has Jesus as Lord and Savior desires to partake of the divine nature as much as possible now. Because by desiring to partake of the divine nature, you're essentially saying, I want to know Christ more. I want to know God more. I want to be holy. I want to be free from the corruption of this world. I want to be free from my sin. But if you desire to continue in your sin, if you desire to continue to follow your will, then essentially you don't have a desire for what is holy, which means you don't have a desire for Christ. Those who do desire such things, though, they take advantage of the high priest that we have, the one who sits with God at his right hand. Romans 8.34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Doing what? Who indeed is interceding for us. He's interceding on our behalf. He is acting as our mediator between us and God. He is by him that we are able to draw near to the throne of grace. See, we can't partake of the divine nature without Jesus. We can't know God without Jesus like we talked about last night. He came to testify of truth. He is the fullness of God's revelation. He is the revealing of the mystery of God. We can't enjoy the fellowship that gives us peace and joy in all things without Christ. We can't have the abundant life if we don't know Jesus. First John 2, 1-6, John kind of expounds on this a little bit. He writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atonement for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Just think of all the people who say, well, I know Jesus, or I love Jesus, or I have Jesus, I don't need the church. Well, you're not keeping his commandments on gathering and loving one another and forbearing with one another. So how can you claim to know him if you don't know his bride, if you aren't being faithful to his commandments, aren't keeping his word, according to his word, according to John, that makes that person a liar and the truth is not in him. John goes on and says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this, we may know that we are in him. This is how we know we have everlasting life. This is how we know we have eternal life. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's holiness. That's us partaking of the divine nature. That's us leaving the, corru- the corruption of this world. This is us dying to self. That is denying ourselves, leaving our way of how we live, how we want to live behind and following the way of Christ and how he lived. That's us being crucified with him. And we want to do this because if we abide in him, if we are in him, then he can save us. He can save even the worst of us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We used this verse last week. We used it last night, using it again this morning. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You cannot draw near to God unless you are abiding in Christ. If you try to draw near to God by other means, by other ways, you won't. And all of this is made possible because of the fulfillment of the promise given by God way back in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve at the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, where God speaking to the serpent with Adam and Eve standing right there, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is what Christmas is all about. This is the merriment of Christmas. This is the joy of the world, the peace on earth, that God fulfilled the promise that God, was, God provided the son of Eve that he promised from long ago to conquer sin, to deliver his people from their sins, to conquer the devil and to release the slaves, to free the oppressed. This is why we celebrate Christmas. That God, with us, Emmanuel, came to the earth for a time. And he came for a time in order that he may be seated at the right hand of God Almighty, not just so that he can enjoy such exaltation. He does. He deserves that exaltation anyway, that, that praise also. But he does so. He came so that he could be exalted, so that he could serve as our priest, so that he could intercede for us in order that he could save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is why the Christmas spirit is not about a season. Right? We don't celebrate Jesus just once a year. We celebrate him every week, every Sunday. And we celebrate him every Sunday because we desire to live for him every day of the year, 24-7. We gather weekly to be reminded of the good news of Christmas throughout the year so that we can live holy lives, so that we can encourage one another, that we can remind ourselves that no matter how dark the winters may get, it's a season, and we're not alone, and we're with one another. So we gather together to celebrate Christmas this Sunday, and we'll celebrate Christmas next Sunday, and we'll celebrate Christmas the Sunday after that, and we'll celebrate Christmas anytime we fellowship together, whether it's in this church or in our homes, because the Christmas spirit is meant for a new, new life that is to be lived, not merely for a season, but for all of eternity. Let's pray. Precious Father, we thank you for your words this morning. We thank you for the reminder of who your son is, what he has done, what he is doing, where he is at, the kind of high priest that we have who intercedes, who mediates between us directly, between us and you. 
we thank you that we have such a high priest. We thank you that we have such a savior, such a king, a Lord that you have put over us. We thank you for your promises that you, you planned from the beginning of time. We thank you that you are holy sovereign, that you're holy merciful, you're holy gracious, and you're holy just, Father. That though we may not understand all things about you or, or how you work things together, we trust you. We know you are good. And Father, we know we are sinners. We ask that you would convict us as necessary, that you would put a sour taste in our mouths this morning of the sin that we may be holding on to. And any time in our lives that we might cling to sin or be hesitant to let go of it, may we know how distasteful, how disgusting, how vile it is to you, Father. And may we know the goodness, the joy, the pleasant taste, the pleasant aroma of your holiness. May we partake of it. May we have, a, a, at the very least, a sliver of what awaits us in eternity. And Father, we ask that as we do so, that your spirit would empower us, that we would do this in your power, that we would recognize and remember that our efforts to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that is a gift of righteousness from you, that just the very ability to do what is right is a gift from you so that we may know you and that we may glorify you and we may know true contentment and true peace. Father, we ask that you'd bless the elements at the table before us, the bread and the cup, that they would be those reminders, those gifts of the promises of the new covenant, the promises of your grace, that the work that your son has done, it is accomplished, it is finished, it is done, and we may rest. But also points to his return, that you, are, you will send him, and when he comes, he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. But we who are in him now, we anxiously await that day, Father. So help us to live in holy anticipation as we live as living sacrifices, as acts of worship towards you and him by the power of the Spirit. So may the bread and the cup encourage us this morning. May we encourage one another. May you bless the food that we will receive uh, following communion when the food is ready. May we enjoy it. May we enjoy the conversation even more in the company that we keep. And Father, may all that we do, that whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we say, whatever we do, whatever we think, may we glorify you, your Son, and the Spirit all the more. Be with us as we go out from here. Bless us with safety on the roads. Bless us with wisdom and discernment as we speak to those, especially family members, perhaps who aren't believers. May we be witnesses of the truth. May your Spirit work through us. May we trust in the work of the Spirit. May we understand and rest that it's not on us. Those who come to you, you call them. Your Spirit opens their eyes. We are mere vessels. So help us to be willing vessels to be used by you for your glory. Father, we ask these things for your glory. By power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, as given to us in the name of your Holy Son and by his blood. Amen. So at this time, we'll go into a time of communion. If you're a believer who's not walking in unrepentant sin, you may come on up, grab the elements, uh, take it to your seats, um, and then at which time um, we will uh, take the elements together, and then we will close with a couple songs of praise.